Hey, you listen to the Cracks podcast. That means you're awesome. I love saying that. And hey, why don't you be awesome with Squarespace? Oh, sure, sure. You're doing it on your own offline, probably in the streets, in your house. Why don't you do it online with a beautiful website of your own? It's a template created by a world-class designer. Then you customize it to your own thing. Boom, custom domain. Boom, you've got a shingle on the internet like you ought to have in 2018 or the future probably. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected as a chance to create new stories and connections, you just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean finish. Cheers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also wishing you a happy Labor Day. Uh, this show, it always comes out on Mondays, so we still deliver episodes on holidays like Labor Day, and we do that for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is ain't a holiday for everybody. A lot of people working today, and shout out to you if you are. Many of you have non-Monday to Friday work schedules because this is, you know, Earth and the society we're all in, and the world is full of an amazing array of job types. For instance, dot, 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 and then normally right here I would do like comedy examples of jobs people do, right? Like I would do two normal strange jobs and then a third extra made up one. That, that would be some joke structure that would work because lots of jokes rely on artifice and on making stuff up. But comedy is less interesting, I think, than the actual range of jobs there are in the world. And that's what we're talking about today. Our topic is bizarre jobs you never knew existed, which Cracked is uniquely positioned to cover because of its personal experience section of articles. And that was originally created by our pal, Robert Evans. The PE section and team bring in amazing stories from people like you, and they spin them into comedy gold that is also still rooted in fact. It's all true. It's all journalism. My guests are two of those cracked journalists, Isaac Cabe and Evan Simon, and I get to dive with them today into the wild, wide world of work, because there are more ways to make a living than you ever imagined, and let's find that out. So please sit back or sit in your forklift at the forklift factory where, because like it's a forklift factory, they keep having to build bigger forklifts to move the previous forklift. I know it's not funny, but it's made up. That's kind of the point. You know what I mean? Either way, let's enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Isaac Cabe, Evan Simon, and amazing real jobs. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined by Evan Simon and Isaac Cape from Cracked. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. No problemo. That first voice was Isaac. Keep speaking a little bit. I'm going to keep speaking because you told me to. Yeah, that's what Isaac sounds like. And Evan, what do you sound like? I, I, I guess I sound like this. I, oh my I'm God. not entirely sure. Great. That helps people know. And uh, we are going to be talking about all kinds of different people in the entire world because you guys work in the personal experience section of the website, um, among other things. And you've reported on so many different careers that I didn't know where even things people could do for money in a lot of cases. How do you find these people? It, like if people listening don't know much about the PE section, uh, how does it kind of come together? Well, for personal experiences, you find them through a variety of ways. Sometimes it could be as simple as I'm in an airport and someone starts talking to me. It could be oh. that easy. It has happened before. Uh, <laughs> most of the time it's people online. You go, Reddit, for example, is a great way to find people. Uh, okay. If they write on forums... Uh, even a blog post, lots of ways. <laughs> if I'm someone out in the world who has an amazing thing I want to tell the PE team about, what do I do? <laughs> well, right on correct. There's a great way to do it. Uh, go into the forums and just type in your experience. And there's also <laughs> tips at cracked.com if you want to email us. Oh, great. There's so many ways. With, uh, with one of these that came up, we kind of went over a lot of jobs in advance of this. And one of them is being a pretend businessman in China. 
being so, uh, which is a phenomenal job title. I hope it's on the business cards. But <laughs> how did you come across this uh, person or people? I was looking for people with weird jobs, as I do. And uh, <laughs> I looked at a few forum posts about uh, between U.S. and China, and then I saw, oh, I was a fake businessman here. I'm not just saying that as the gist. That's literally what he said in like the post <laughs> as the title. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I vaguely heard about this happening before because, you know, it's like one of those weird jobs that other people look at and like, oh, that is weird. Yeah. I went through him and his experience and yeah, it's like, it's winding down now because the U.S. and Chinese relationship on business matters is getting a lot better, but... Because this pretend businessman thing, uh, in the article you talk about, it's a thing where people who are Americans, and I, I assume especially who appear to be white people, uh, they go to China and just hang out with actual Chinese businessmen yeah. to make them look like they have fantastic international projects going on. That's right. And you don't have to just be American. I mean, you could be British. Uh, they had Australians, oh. things like that. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, uh, you have to be white. Yeah. And... Uh, a lot of companies have either gotten wind about this or it's just been become so saturated uh, that they don't need it. Like bigger cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, they pretty much have enough right now. So they're going to smaller and smaller cities. So they're going for like the Chinese version of like Fort Wayne or the Chinese version of <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> Because they haven't had the experience with them yet. So they're like, oh, yeah. wow, white person, you must be legitimate. They have to go to smaller and smaller cities. I love the idea of it being, this being oversaturated. Are, they, are there conference rooms in Beijing where there are just 10 extra white guys who were paid to be props? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much conference rooms as like news conferences for like the local uh, news uh, outlet oh. <laughs> in China. It's just like, oh, look at this. We have foreign investment now. Yeah, I think the article said this peaked in the early 2000s. And then like you say, they're having to find new ways to either spice it up or find a, a location where people aren't used to it yet. I assume this will just filter out eventually, right? Like this is this job is just a moment in time. Eventually, yeah. But also uh, places like Nigeria are next for the next, um, you know, manufacturing area. So that could be happening there soon. <laughs> As you mentioned, this is just kind of a moment in time because the internet has really kind of wiped out the need for a lot of that too like it's very simple to just google someone's name and be like oh that's not a businessman that's like some random frat boy in you know illinois that's just not a real yeah. person i often think that about the internet with a lot of different just things in the world because like you say isaac it's so easy to just google anybody and check on stuff it seems like crime was much 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 easier from the 1980s all the way back. Maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was no way to easily see if anybody was who they say they were. Oh, yeah. I have to find people for PEs, and I often have to, like, background check them. And most of the time, they're, they say who they are. It's like, oh, look at your Facebook. You are who you say you are. Great. Right. But sometimes they use, like, a fake name for whatever reason, and I look it up, and it's like, you don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Wenda, and there's so many other gigs, too, here that I want to talk about. This is a thing that takes us to New York City. Oh, what a what a gleaming metropolis of America. And it is a place where for a long period of time, again around the early 2000s, but also more recently, there were what's called rubber room teachers. Uh, uh, let's get into what that is. So a rubber room teacher is basically a teacher, any teacher, any teacher. Okay, I follow so far. Uh, who does something bad. It could range from the speakable to the unspeakable. And then uh, they get placed into a room on leave because... You can't fire them because of the union rules, and you can't let them teach because of the bad thing they did. So right. they it, place them in limbo. They place them in teacher purgatory. They teach it, It's <laughs> teacher jail is what it is. They're in a room. There's almost nothing in there to do. They bring all their own stuff, and they just sit there all day while they wait for a ruling, which can come within a week or can come within a few years. Who knows? <laughs> years. Yeah, there have been some confirmed cases of people being in there for years, just sitting around doing nothing, getting college, working on college degrees in their spare time because they have they've been in there so long. A lot of the times, the teachers also just sleep, which is what most people want to do at the office, anyways. Because uh, according to your story and some other stuff about this, they are not allowed to bring in certain things. It's sort of like I, I remember how detention works in general, where there are certain rules that just try to keep you bored at a desk, you know. And this uh, this rubber room thing, they are not allowed to bring in phones. They are allowed to bring in laptops, but they can't use the internet. Then they can't bring in pillows, mattresses, or beach chairs. So you have people 
go ahead and bring in laptops and then also go ahead and bring in just stuff that they can turn into a pillow and then they steal Wi-Fi and sleep. And that's what they do. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) One of the buildings in New York is right by a Starbucks and Starbucks has free internet. Oh, yeah, it's great. And then people like to go to sleep. They like button like three cardigans in a row and then use that as a blanket. They get creative. It's right. It almost sounds like, you know, that cartoon thing where somebody ties a bunch of sheets together to climb out a window. It sounds like they're doing that, but to build beds out of their own stuff. It's the real life teacher version of that. (laughs) (laughs) As you mentioned, this shows up in like multiple professions, too. And it's not just teachers. When cops get put on, quote unquote, administrative leave, like it's probably a similar sort of thing. And if you look in the news right now, there's that. uh, Urban Meyer. Yeah, Urban Meyer. There's that domestic violence case that. Apparently yeah. he knew something, but he claims he didn't or whatever the case is. And like he's on paid administrative leave, but he's making millions of dollars to not coach football. That's yeah. that's just absurd to me. Yeah, because Isaac, you're, you're familiar with the world of Ohio. But for people who aren't, who is Urban Meyer, this football coach? He's uh, a national championship winning college football coach. For yeah. Ohio State. For Ohio State. Ohio State, yeah. Yeah. And he, right, and so he is on some kind of leave because a subordinate of his did uh, some domestic violence and then they're questioning what he knew, something yeah, like that. Yeah, basically. Because also there was a story came across where there's a state trooper in Iowa, his name is Wade Carp, and he was put on 10 months of paid leave for completely unclear reasons. And then the news found out about it and then he was fired because people found out. <laughs> and also there was a story where apparently there was an accidental gunshot in a uh, state building in Des Moines, and it was probably him. So he was probably sitting around doing nothing and, like, dropped his gun or something. Uh, Best case scenario, dropped his gun. (laughs) Right. It seems like no one was hurt, so it's now just very funny that it happened. Uh, But it it is such a weird thing where I am very, very pro-union. I think they're great. Uh, They've also declined in size and power over the last few years because uh, corporations are picking on them, you know? Mm -hmm. Also, there are these weird liminal spaces where it seems like certain jobs through just weird rules they can be placed in spaces where they just don't do anything and get paid because that's the existing disciplinary system police unions powerful they can do that teachers unions very powerful can do that yeah but like if it's like united auto workers like there's a guy on leave for two years they'd be like no that doesn't work at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah because this uh this new york city public school union in the article, it says the average time a teacher spends in that space, either because they are being investigated or it's done, is an average time of three years. And somebody was in there for 12 years. Is that right? <laughs> That's a lot of time. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, How much of that accrues towards retirement? All of it. Oh, geez. You're technically on leave. That's So you get paid during the entire time. So if you get in at age 30 and got at age 42, you have like 12 years of retirement saved. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm not the the sharpest tool in the box necessarily, but I think I could put together a PhD in 12 years of <laughs> oh, complete absolutely. free time. No way, like easily. Let's let's easily. learn something. Yeah, at least through the University of Phoenix or something. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'll steal Starbucks Wi-Fi. I get a PhD. It'll be great. Perfect. <laughs> uh, we we talked about sports a bit through uh, the magic of Urban Meyer. Yeah, and there's a sports version in Cutter, but also there's an American version where people are fake fans. And they're fake fans of people who want to seem like celebrities. Is that right? There's two trains of thought there. Uh, it's either people who want to seem like celebrities. You know, they come to Los Angeles. They want to be a movie star for a day. So they're like, hey, all these fake people, make me a movie star. So they like <laughs> follow around, take selfies, give them the whole A-list treatment, even though they don't deserve it. And then in the second group, it's already somewhat famous people, you know, grade C, D, E, F. G, other letters, yeah. R, yeah, sure. Yeah, all the way down that list. (laughs) Uh, One of the people I talked to mentioned someone in The Apprentice, so I guess R, S, T, somewhere down there. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) They want to be more famous or they want to show to, like, an executive that people do love me, so they set up a meeting with the executive in, like, say, a cheesecake factory, you know, where all the fancy Hollywood people go. Right, all the business. Yeah, so, and then they hire, uh, oh, say, about 10 people. Ship them over there and like one by one, you know, staggered over 10. They're like, hey, I know you from The Apprentice. Can I, can you sign your book? Because they wrote a book for some reason. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, it happens all the time. Don't worry about Mr. Executive. And, you know, it plays in their hand. It shows that they're popular and you can use them from many different ways. It's almost corollary to the, the fake businessman in China 
as I understand it from that case, the language barrier helps. Like the American or British person will just stand there not saying anything. But this fake fan thing in, in L.A. especially, there's a lot of acting to it. It's basically another acting role, right? It really is. A yeah. lot of the people they hire do, are like out-of-work actors. And what I like about this is that like even within the job, there's like little things that are different, like little uh, subcategories of it. Like, do you just want to take selfies with them? This is your job now. You get to take selfies with slightly more famous people. You just like to sit there and look like you're important? Yeah, here you go. Do that. It's that specialized, the individual <laughs> actions that people do? It depends on how many people are there, like what, what the job is, but generally, yeah. And, but I world. guess it's a business thing. Like, I mean, the guy from The Apprentice ended up signing some sort of like actual business deal, at least partially based on the fact that he seemed popular enough to carry a brand yeah. to, to an effect. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does help them with business. It just is a really shady way to do it. <laughs> Right. Like I, I guess I respect the initiative. But it is, it is fraudulent. But it, but it could work. Like, right. Yeah, and maybe it worked in that case. Yeah. It's like yeah. the fake crowds that have sprung up in the last few years. Uh, like for rallies, for different, you know, political things. Yeah, there's fake crowds now too, where you can have like people like saying, you know, we like this candidate. So like they look like they have a lot of support in one area, even though they may not. <laughs> I don't know if I'm familiar with this one. It's a fake crowd for a political figure? Yeah. Say during the 2016 election, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump did hire fake fans and, like, fake crowds technically in, like, certain events. They've proven it. (laughs) Oh, because that's sort of a – there's conspiracy theories on the internet around uh, somebody like George Soros or another wealthy person purchasing protesters for things. This sounds like it's a separate thing that uh, that is actually proven. Protesters, uh, I guess you can hire them too. But for for crowds, if they need to fill out space or they need someone to be more on their side, yeah. Well, because there is a sports version in the country of Qatar where the uh, government there is hiring people to fill out the crowds for sporting events because their country wants to be a major holder of sports events. So in 2014, they held a beach volleyball open and hired 150 people to be in the crowd and just be real <laughs> stoked about beach volleyball and. First of all, if you can't fill a beach volleyball venue, that's just a fun sport, man. It's summery. <laughs> there's a lot of sand. Uh, it's very easy to understand when the ball lands, somebody loses. You know, I get it. And uh, they had to hire a bunch of people to fill that out. And then apparently they do that at lots of other events. We did a, an episode of this show about World Cups and Cutter's going to have one in 2022. And our experts said that they will probably fill out those stadiums with a lot of people, often given traditional cuttery dress as a costume because they're not actually from the country. Right, because the World Cup in 2022, that's going to be taking place just before Christmas. Yeah, it's a a winter one. And a lot of people won't want to go to a country where the temperature tops out like, what, 122 Fahrenheit or something like that. It's usually a summer event. They're doing it in the winter because it gets that hot in the summer and you probably can't play soccer in that. So they're doing it when it's merely, I believe, in the 90s. It's terrible. Yeah. And so there will be a bunch of actors there because that's a job you can go get somehow. I don't know how. But it's, I don't know. Cutter is an interesting example. It's I don't know that they have the same kind of like wannabe actor Hollywood structure that exists like out here in Los Angeles because out here like they do kind of go the extra mile. The one of the stories that we talked about in the article that we did was uh, the Special Olympics was in town, and oh. that was a it, it, like it's kind of an adorable story. Yeah. So a bunch of people showed up in wheelchairs and asked for the autographs of these uh, Paralympians or whatever that they just wanted, you know, to show that they were supportive and that sort of thing. And it's it's like a heartwarming story in a way that these special Olympians who came to town just they saw that they were supported and loved. And I think that was just kind of inspiring. The people who came to get the autographs, were they like paid actors? Yeah, they were paid actors to just sit in a wheelchair. Oh, that disappoints me. Oh, like why? I think that's nice. I don't know. It's uh, I, I'm conflicted about it, man. <laughs> <laughs> like the people who were arriving, like you know, getting off the plane at LAX or whatever, they were they were like, oh my gosh, I have fans here. Like, yeah, yeah. But I, what it was really for was a Special Olympics video showing, you know. This an athlete coming back. They all, you know, when you ever see like a commercial, it's like, oh, look, this guy's back, yay! So they wanted that for the Special Olympian. Yeah. Oh, okay. So some kind of it was it was a promo, but you now I'm more into it. Yeah, great. Yeah. In that same piece about people who are paid to be fans in LA, there's also a story in there you guys found about a little league game where uh, one of the kids was about to go into chemotherapy for their cancer, you know? And so this yeah. might be one of their last games or for a while, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to play during. So then the company that hires out fake fans was contracted to do 
X number of people. They sent twice as many, and everybody's super committed to giving this kid, you know, the best day they can have. That's essentially fulfilling a make-a-wish kind of thing. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, that's, some of the, some of these really weird jobs we're talking about today are are really positive and nice. It's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nice. So I like that. That or this Special Olympics thing or something. I don't know. There's a positive to it. Yeah. It depends on how cynical you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I don't, I don't want to defraud people uh, or or like gaslight people into thinking they're more popular than they are. There's also just like a nice element to it. It makes me think of there's a, an improv everywhere stunt that they did. If people don't know, improv everywhere makes YouTube videos where they uh, organize a whole bunch of people to make sort of a stunt happen. It's not really improv comedy. It's more of an event. Uh, and they did one where they went to a mini golf course and gave the little kids playing mini golf. The experience of it being like a PGA Tour sort of event. There were announcers. There were crowds. There, they made it feel like a, a huge thing. So there's like a golf announcer going like, and uh, it looks like he's putting on the green. And exactly. oh, it yeah. went in. <laughs> very, very quiet. Yeah, just all quiet putt announcements. But then big celebration, you know, and that kind of thing is just very, very positive to me. And I like the idea that there could be a whole company paying people to create that. That's a cool thing. But maybe I'm over-optimistic. <laughs> we need more optimism. Everyone does. <laughs> it's especially like, because this fake fan thing kind of carries over. It's a cultural thing, too. I mean, apparently this is more widely accepted in places like Asia, you know, where it's, you go over to, like, one of the jobs that you asked us to talk about was um, the professional mourners. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's a hugely intense process, and it's more culturally relevant over in places like China, where your your funeral is probably the biggest celebration you're ever going to have in your not life. Right. So it's <laughs> so people really want they want to go out with a bang in a way. It's it's not just trickling over into the West and everything too, but it's kind of impressive the dramaturgy element that goes into it too. You have to do like a character study on the deceased and it's yeah. it's it's kind of scary there in a way. I forget I, I forget what the word dramaturgy means. Please please save me. Oh, dramaturgy is kind of where you like you know, study what's going on in the thing you're about to act in. Oh, great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they're prepping the whole lives of the people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they have yeah. To, there's like a Wikipedia fact sheet of them. Like, oh, here's a fun fact. This guy did this during the war. It's like, oh, okay. Maybe I can mention that. <laughs> that makes me seem like a relative. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah he volunteered at animal shelters on the weekends. Oh, I should maybe know something about animals. And like during right. this, like the family does get suspicious sometimes. Like, here's this relative you never met. <laughs> Oh, Just yeah, go with it. It's like funeral crashers. Yeah. In, in a yeah. way. In a know? way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're not like faking a purple heart or anything like that. But Yeah, because I'm thinking of the movie Wedding Crashers where you, there's like a, a sort of montage of them being very good at pretending to know the couple. You know, this is this is kind of like that, but for funerals, but paid yeah. and positive. Yeah. yeah. Right. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's the family. They want to show like they had more friends or whatever, so they hire them. Or sometimes they just want more people crying there. Or sometimes the yeah. deceased was like, I want more people at my funeral. I'll write it in my will. And they do that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That they There's a line in the will that says, by the way, we need to juice this thing. Um, well, maybe not the will, or but there's like a final <laughs> wish. Sorry. But there's like a final wish saying, oh, okay. I want more people at my funeral. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess we could hire these guys. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they, like, set aside money for it and, like, oh, no, that's part of my inheritance. I'm not getting – I have to spend it on actors. And they are actors. I mean, they have to yeah. cry on cue sometimes, and it, it is a hard thing to cry on cue. Because the piece, if I remember right, there's things about their process to get that crying on cue right. Yeah. Right. Uh, my so source, Owen Vaughn, he actually has to think about the Schindler's List, the one speech at the end that <laughs> – if I could save one more person, I don't want to get people too sad, but – that and he's like it always works <laughs> oh man <laughs> or for uh, female mourners they often go with titanic i guess what a robust source of feelings titanic <laughs> 20 years out still working it's doing its job <laughs> that's totally believable to me because that is an actual acting skill especially in a tv or film setting where there's a mm -hmm. lot of stopping and starting and redoing yeah. you know mm -hmm. that's amazing that people are quietly cultivating the exact skills of a professional actor but at people's funerals well, on set, you have, you have you know, different takes. Sometimes, you know, hundreds possibly in a day. It depends. Oh, and, but for yeah. funerals, it's all live. <laughs> oh, yeah, one shot. Yeah. yeah. So you got, you got one chance of crying. You better get it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel for the deceased people there. Like maybe, maybe if I was in a different culture, had a different life, I, I would be 
really, really fixated on exactly who comes to my funeral and how they respond yeah. to it. But I, I, I feel like one release from that sort of social pressure would be death. You know, I, w- I wouldn't right. be worried about it anymore. Exactly. You guys did an amazing piece about Nazi hunters. And I really thought that job was also a moment in time. I thought I thought we really did most of it. And then through the passage of time, it sort of wrapped itself up. Uh, well, I actually had to go to Germany for this one. You, you know. went to you went to Germany for it? Yeah, I had to go to Berlin and Hamburg. I don't really work with the PE team in my work at Cracked, but I hear about what you guys are doing. And uh, each, like each of you, how many places have you been covering this stuff, if at, if at all? Uh, I've been all over the world for it. Um, yeah. I've been everywhere from the RNC to like Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, and Vietnam, just going for some of these people I've got. I'm planning a few things. We'll see how it turns out now. But yeah, generally, yeah. You have, sometimes you have to go to places for these because they won't be on the phone. You can't find through regular methods. And you might have like a fixer, you know, someone who can, someone over there who can help you find these people. But that's oh. about it. Uh, it is still a very real job. I talked to several people there. Uh, there was one Nazi hunter in Germany I was with. And also I talked to Dr. Ephraim Zaroff of the Simon Wiesenthal Center because Simon Wiesenthal was the famous Nazi hunter. Oh, yes. Yeah, I recognize that name. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still a job because, you know, the Nazi uh, war criminals are now in their 90s and above. One of the reasons I thought this job had wound down is just the passage of time. You know, even the people who got away with it and went off to some other place will just eventually die because people do. But I guess I guess a bunch of them are what is it nonagenarians? What's the term? Acto was eight, so yeah. I think nana sounds right. Great. So like these nonagenarians, they're like uh, in Germany still, or they're like overseas. Uh, there was a famous case about a decade ago with Don Tamanchuk from, and he was in Cleveland, another Ohio plug. <laughs> Took years for him to get out because he was in his 80s and 90s, and they finally got him to a court in Munich, and you know they sentenced him to a few years in prison, which is the equivalent of life at right. that age. Right. <laughs> And they're still doing this because these are war criminals. They did do terrible things. I was a Nazi hunter for a day <laughs> because I was helping him find— Elaborate on that. What, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, so I was with uh, Jürgen, uh, who was uh, helping, you know, still find where these Nazis are a day. They want oh. to just keep track of them still just in case they try and flake out for whatever reason. So you did like a police ride along, but for Nazi hunting. Yeah. Uh, okay. It was in wow. ha- it was in the suburbs of Hamburg, Germany. I know, exciting place. And uh, we had to go to several uh, nursing homes just to make sure is that guy still there? Uh-huh. Because if he like gets out suddenly to oh, let's just say South America somewhere suddenly for no reason in his nineties, they want to know about it so they know how to prosecute him still. Incredible, yeah. yeah. And the guy wasn't a good guy. Uh, his name was Gerhard Sommer. You can look him up if you want, but. Uh, yeah, it was he, did, war. he did Nazi stuff, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. Nazi stuff. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, because, yeah, in the article, you guys pick out that there's a German organization called the Z Commission, which is just a great name. But it's in it's handling the continual processing of prosecuting uh, former Nazi war criminals. And it's so active that they prosecuted 50 Nazis in the year 2013. Right. Uh, there's no statute of limitations on this. I mean, if they even yeah. tried to do it, there'd be an uproar. So... Yeah, I, that would make me mad, I think. Yeah. yeah, so Germany's really good. Yeah, Germany's really good at this. Italy's really good at it, for, both for obvious reasons, uh, wanting to prosecute these guys. And Israel's good at it when they can get them. And then the United States is really good at it because, you know, large Jewish population and really wants to get them. So yeah, any other country uh, is really hard to get them out of, especially countries like Canada or Australia. They've had huge problems in the past trying to get these guys out. Canada so, and Australia are tough for Nazi hunters. Yeah, Canada, there were several people they just couldn't touch for whatever reason. Yeah. Wait, so the, the Canadians said uh, you can't come in here and haul out this this former Nazi. It happens. Uh, I, that's the best I could explain. It just happens. Like for, for, <laughs> no, oh, for, no. Like, for numerous, there's numerous reasons. Yeah. Like, you know, right. Canadian they're politeness. so old. We don't want to cause any more strife because they're so old. That's usually the case. Like Man, they're, they're sick. They're, they're not going to last that much longer. Why do you want to do this? For many Nazi hunters out there, for justice, they still want it. Right, right. Because there's not a lot of Holocaust survivors left, but they want to do it for the memory of those that were lost. So to many Nazi hunters, this is a very personal thing. Oh, it would have to be, I'm sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like many of these jobs, I'm very curious how people get into them in the first place because there's not – no one's just enrolling in college undecided and then one of the things in the syllabus of courses is intro to Nazi hunting or something. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a job that you – 
uh, really, really find, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, it, it must be personal for every one of them. Uh, many of the current Nazi hunters are either historians or uh, most are of Jewish descent, yeah. obvious reasons, but uh, many are like historians. They look it up. They join like a Holocaust Remembrance Center or something like that. And then yeah. it just goes on to that. And also the other job here that jumps out to me as something I thought we had uh, just moved past due to the movement of history is spice merchant. Now, when I think of spice merchant, I think wooden sailing ships, Portugal in the 1500s, you know, stuff like that. But it it turns out this is still a thing. Absolutely. And us being a bunch of, you know, random white guys from the Midwest, we grew up in families where the only seasoning anybody knows about is salt. Like that's just, that's yeah. all that Sometimes anybody pepper. uses. Sometimes pepper. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, okay. that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> for us, at least, it's it's just kind of fascinating to realize that there is so much more to the world of spices out there. Like saffron, that stuff is so expensive. Oh, it rules. It's, oh, it's great. Yeah. But there's like a whole black market for it. Well, you know, uh, saffron is just the tendrils of a certain flower. It's just like the few little strings attached to the inside of the flower. And- you need 250,000 flowers for one ounce of saffron. So a quarter of a million flowers make one ounce of saffron. Yeah. Each of those but, little tendrils that goes in there, there's two of them per flower, and each one is just like this tiny, tiny fraction of an ounce. Oh, my God. So saffron is a very expensive spice. And, <laughs> well, now it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of countries have problems because India arrests about three people a day trying to smuggle it over the borders. Spice stealers. Here we go. How much of the spice merchant job is like smuggling and illegal stuff? Is, is it mostly driven by just something being really rare so they're trying to get it? Or is it is it purely just trading spices to get them out there? Uh, Well, every major spice company has one of these guys and several smaller ones too, like my guy was. And they go for the expensive ones, saffron, true cinnamon. Uh, You know, there's different, there's uh, Chinese cinnamon. cinnamon. Yeah, there's Chinese cinnamon, which is like the twirly one that you put on uh, cinnamon stuff, I guess. And then there's- (laughs) It's delicious, go on. Yeah, and then there's also uh, true cinnamon or also called Ceylon cinnamon. And it's sweeter, better for baking. That's much more expensive. I went to a Whole Foods and I saw they had the cinnamon there was called Ceylon cinnamon. And I was Googling on my phone because I was like, is it completely different? Is it one of these things where, you know how cooking ingredients, they'll have sometimes have a very similar name and it's totally different. I was really panicking that it turned out it was just very nice. But so there's true cinnamon, there's saffron, and there's all these other spices that they're they're specializing in. Right. And they have to go to like markets and my guy went to Indonesia a lot, Jakarta. And like these markets aren't the best kept you sometimes. So Mm. like there's could be like rain dripping on them. And it's like, I don't want that batch. (laughs) Oh, oh, the stuff's just out and there's no uh, uh, roof or sneeze guard or anything. Yeah. And sometimes uh, every once in a while they introduce a new spice and it's like, does this one taste good on this? Or so they it's it's a process. (laughs) Imagine trying to hold back a sneeze when your job is just sitting in front of pepper all day. (laughs) I, I feel like they have to have some kind of sneeze guard in place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they start to lose their sense of smell after a while, too, because they'll work in, like, in warehouses filled with different kinds of spices. And Whoa. after a while, I'll be like, can't smell that really good anymore. <laughs> There's a thing I think about a lot just in general, which is that I think the Internet is not as universal as especially those of us who are on it all the time tend to think. You know, like I'll see something being debated on Twitter and I, I try to remind myself most of the world isn't seeing this debate. This is just <laughs> the people on Twitter. Is this spice job? a product of uh, the internet and globalization just not having gotten everywhere yet, you know? Like, especially you said they were disco- they were coming up on new spices and figuring out what they do, if I understood It still right. happens, yeah. Yeah, so this is, is this because there are still places to kind of discover? That's amazing. Part of it is some spice companies don't trust local judgment, which is oh. kind of terrible, but also oh, you see that, yeah, so they send the guys out saying, you find the right spices for this, or there's a certain new spice they have. Let's see what that does and get the best one there for testing, I guess. But when they try to bring some back, sometimes they're mistaken as drug dealers at airports because they have this packet <laughs> of white spice and they're wondering like, hey, what's that? <laughs> Right, and they're just trying to be like, it's cream of tartar. It's horse <laughs> snickerdoodles, if you know that recipe. But it <laughs> And snickerdoodles translates well to, you know, Indonesian and Chinese. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
I hear and I hear that job title. Like if somebody came to me and they were said, "Hey, this is my past resume of work," and one of the things was spice merchant, I would be like, "Oh, do I call Henry the Navigator for a reference or something?" Like, wow, is that your job? <laughs> yeah, when saffron goes for fifteen hundred dollars a pound, you better believe it's a job. Yeah, I, mean, I still can't get over that quarter million flowers thing. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Because, hey, you, you're great. Uh, Not enough people are saying that lately to your face. Like, they're saying it around you or behind your back or to each other. Like, you're great, but you should hear it directly. And guess what? You ought to show that off with a website. Because the whole internet should know people in other states, countries, places, maybe planets. If we're getting the internet out there, I don't really know how the internet works, apparently. But you do, and you should build a website so you're on it. Squarespace has beautiful templates created by world-class designers. You can customize them exactly how you want. Your website will work well on mobile. Also, they have an e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online and then gives you analytics to track how that's going. If you want to build some of your income into being selling things on the internet, that's a great way to do it. You're all set. That way you can build an entire business without a bunch of analytics guys or or other people in ties. Who works at a company? Uh, you probably know. What I know is that Squarespace is optimized for mobile right out of the box. They let you buy your own domain. They let you have 24-7 customer support. So why don't you head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch that site, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash CRACKED, offer code CRACKED. And and with exploring the world and discovering more of it, uh, you also talk to a job that it's, I think, a job people know exists at least in some way, but they may not know a lot about, which is Google Street View Drivers. And maybe maybe I think people know about it because I've seen the cars around once in a while. It's usually a Prius or sort of a small four-door kind of car with an mm-hmm. enormous pole sticking out of the middle of it with sort of a ball-shaped omniscient camera on the yeah. top. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if everyone's seen one of those, but they're crazy. And uh, there's a, a real person driving it. It's the whole thing. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it was featured in Arrest Development Season 4 and 5. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing there is these jobs aren't that easy to get. You just can't walk into Google saying, hey, I want to drive a car. Here's the keys. Have fun. They don't do that. (laughs) Michael was already a very hard-to-hire bluth, and this is (laughs) – I I can't imagine Google would just hand him the reins to anything. I'm amazed so many sitcoms are on the pulse of these crazy jobs. This is great. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. What Google Google does is they don't even say they're from Google. They'll just put them on like some random hiring website and saying – we want a driver. <laughs> Apply if interested. And then you find out later for the interview, oh, you're going to be doing Google Street View for a while. <laughs> if I put in an hour of work as a Street View driver, I would just drive around, right? I would just drive on streets. And uh, then the car takes all the pictures. It depends, but generally, yeah, you can kind of choose your own route uh, unless you were at it recently. But other times it's like, we want to go here around this area. You know, it's a popular area people are looking at. It's just fascinating to me that they've managed to get everywhere. I mean, just like random no-name towns in West Virginia, probably right. the middle of nowhere Canada. Well, I mean, it's, is, it's kind of a problem, too, because while they will get like small towns for seemingly no reason, uh, sometimes they'll miss bigger cities like Wheeling, West Virginia. It's like one of the largest cities in West Virginia. People, You would think people want to know a little more about it. Like, where's the bank? I don't know what it looks like. Yeah. But they've barely covered it. Well, next door, there's a small town in Ohio that there's small towns right across the river that have been covered extensively. My guy even did like a parking lot in a mall. That's not even technically a road. (laughs) (laughs) I hope all he got was pictures of people asking him why he was bothering with a parking lot. That's actually a huge problem, too. People will harass you at this job because uh, people, a lot of people don't like to be photographed, believe it or not. Oh, I So when they're like going slow by someone's house or they have to stop for some reason outside their house, they'll be asked immediately like, hey, why are you taking pictures here? Or what is that thing on top of your car? And then there's there's pictures of somebody being like, ah, if you can't see me, which you can't. I'm pointing and I'm making a face. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's not just pointing. One of the popular pastimes is showing your middle finger at it because it's like oh, you need great. to think of something quick because it's like the Google streetcar <laughs> coming. I want to do something cool. I don't know what. Oh, I know. Sometimes they get creative they know going ahead, but it's actually kind of a problem because there's someone at Google having to go through these pictures. <laughs> yeah, is it like... One time I was in high school and we did a trip to an amusement park as a, as a marching band. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very cool. 
And uh, so we were all doing the roller coasters, you know? And it was the end of ride photo part. And a friend of mine knew it was coming up, so they gave that the finger. And then at the end of the ride, there were just no pictures for us. And (laughs) it was because somebody was that on the ball. They just monitored it and took it out. Oh, the Splash Mountain problem. <laughs> yep. I think I think it might have actually been Splash Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was that exact coaster. So this is a global version of that. There's just people having to go through an entire planet of jerk teen roller coaster pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Th- that means there's somebody somewhere in a basement in like Mountain View, California at the Google base just like, blur the finger, <laughs> blur the finger, God. And like that's his whole job. He's paying yeah. outrageous rent in San Francisco to sit there and blur oh pictures of middle fingers yeah. all day. You work for Google? What do you do? Do you Don't really want to know? <laughs> I think I do remember a thing from the article where uh, it's also not a long-lived job, right? Like if no. someone gets yeah. to do it, they're out pretty much. You know, job security for any job nowadays is eh, iffy, but for Google yeah. Street View, it's pretty much nil. I mean, you can only photograph a place so many times within a, a certain amount of time. I mean, it's just, there's not going to be a ton of change, you know, day to day. In a certain area. In a certain area. And unless it, like, updates a lot, like New York, Philadelphia, one of those types of areas that, you know, always has continuous new things, so they always need new yeah. photos. Like, there's, like, small towns that haven't changed since the 1970s. You only need a photographic once. And it's like, okay, we're done for 50 years. So it's kind of like pretend China businessman and Nazi hunter, where also Google Street View Driver is a moment in time, and it's, yep. it ends. That's it. Well, Google will outlast all of us, apparently. But There will always be new streetcar drivers, but they almost never hire the same people yeah. because it's always different areas. So that car Michael had in Arrested Development, he had it for, sev- like, what, over a year or two? He pretty much stole that car at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did a piece about people who go through drug trials professionally, people who are uh, sort of experimented on in a professional fashion. I think you, you interviewed a nurse who handles them, right? And then oh, found yeah. out about it that way. That was one of the very first P's we did, like way back at the beginning. For me, that one was a fun one because my sister is a nurse, and it's just the kind of things people will do to get into these trials and everything and just make a quick buck is just kind of absurd to me. They have to kind of game the system or something? They do game the system and kind of a lot. So it's really easy to try to to pull one over on these people who are running these drug tests. So the the nurse that I interviewed, it was not my sister. uh, I think it was a stage one drug trial nurse. And there's four stages. So stage one is just like the very basic, can you ingest this? And then stage four is all the way up to like, can we market this? Down at stage one, they're just really trying to see, like, what effects does this have on the body? And you have to be in pretty much perfect health for that. Um, You can't be taking a whole bunch of other drugs. You can't be on any, you know, maintenance medication, that sort of thing. So they want you to be in in very good health so that there aren't variables to it, essentially. And so that they Um, can then break your health. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So one of the reasons that they structure the pay the way that they do is so that you can't keep trying to fool them. Mm. It's all performance-based. So if you are taking something and that gets out, then you don't get paid, basically, is how that works. They're really trying to motivate you to do everything according to their scientific plan. Yeah, well, I mean, that's good. That's good, right? It, it is like, good. helps the test work better? Yeah. In, like, it, it's yeah. probably a strange life, though. It is. And there are people who make fairly decent money on this too. The the nurse that I interviewed said at one point he was comparing notes and if the person was in the trial that he was talking to had gotten their full pay from the program, they would have been making more per hour than him, a, you know, an RNBSN who had gone to school for this wow. kind of thing. Registered nurse something yeah. something? A bachelor of Science oh, okay. in Nursing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which that's just insane. Like on a per hour basis, he was making more money. That was, I thought that was insane. That's crazy. Yeah. We need to, we need to pay nurses more. We, also, I reiterate my support of unions. A lot of opinions here, guys. A lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of easy to manipulate that because there is no national registry of people who have been participating in these drug trials nationally. Okay. So there's not like... Uh, something that says Alex was in a drug trial here in Kentucky from such and such a date to such and such a date. Um, well, there is now. You recorded it. <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs> Whoops. Now my everybody bad. knows. So, um, but if you live in a major metropolitan area and there are other major metropolitan areas within reasonable driving distance, you yeah. can kind of game that system and just, you know, be traveling around. Uh, the one that comes to my mind is like Texas. I mean, you can make a sure. reasonable drive from, like, Houston to San Antonio to Austin and just kind of all the way back around. And it's not 
too, too hard to do that. And so these trails are doing all this work to get sort of a perfect control group of healthy humans. Yeah. But if especially if they're in these big areas, like you say, they're probably getting a lot of really weird lab rat people through. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Weird in terms of their bodies. They're probably <laughs> fine. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of scary in a way that like this is the very first phase. I mean, they go through a lot of testing and... Granted, a lot of testing has to be done before you can even get to humans in the first place. Wow. But these are still kind of dangerous drugs. I mean, we have a very obvious opiate problem in this country. And what they're doing in these drug trials a lot of times is giving them fairly raw opiates and barbiturates. I mean, it's not the kind of stuff that I would want to take, like not even for fun. These are not the kind of drugs that you want in your system on a normal basis. Like you can't go operate heavy machinery after this. Sure. So yeah. it's kind of scary, like the things that they're going to put you through, and you have to know those risks up front. So there are extensive evaluations by these drug trial nurses, and I think that's kind of a, a very important role that gets overlooked. Every nurse has their own weird horror stories of things that they run into, and I feel like these drug trial nurses run into some particularly weird ones. You have to watch out for these scary, scary people that just have no respect for their own bodies. On some level, I want to be glad that they are putting themselves through something, whether or not they mean it to be for the benefit of all of us, it benefits all of us that there are people who do this, yeah. but they, they there's got to be either a mentality or a predicament or something that at least leads you to begin to think rather than say, I don't know, driving Uber. You're like, I will make my money by, by having just whatever drugs people came up with put into me. It's oh, yeah. a very intense situation. It's it's selling your body in arguably the worst way. I, I forget what the article said, but like, how much money do people make at this? Did we talk about that? Yeah, it, it can be something as little as a couple hundred bucks for a day or two to you can be there for over the course of a month and make five figures easily. Wow. Like you're talking ten or $20,000 for a month-long trial. But you have to stay there. I mean, you do have to remove yourself from daily life. You have yeah. to be on their schedule. It's very regimented and that sort of thing. Because you're monitored basically every second in terms so they yeah. can see how your body's doing. But if you're unemployed, I mean, that's a good way to take a month off, I guess, and maybe pull in an additional five figures. In terms of what we put in our bodies, there's also a gig uh, called a Debrouillard. Uh, is that it? I don't pronounce French very well. I, but During my entire interview with him, I kept mispronouncing it every single time. So oh, let's go with move. Chef yeah. Food Finder. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a Debrouillard is a guy who uh, works for a big kitchen, you know, big restaurant, that sort of thing, who goes out and finds ingredients when they need them. Usually it's not a separate job. They're usually like the sous chef or like the stock boy or some other position there. But when you're told to find like wormosa strawberries, get a crate of strawberries, they can get them within five minutes. That, it, like five minutes? It can, it can be that fast sometimes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> your job is literally just knowing a guy. Being in the know about all the food sources in your area. Yeah. Right. And it could be really weird food sometimes. Like get me two elk. Uh, all right. Give me 10 minutes, I'll be back with the truck. <laughs> Two elk. Oh, great. <laughs> and famous chefs have had to use these too. I mean, Anthony Bourdain had his own guys go out and do this sort of thing too, where he he needed some ingredient and he'd have to have guys in his kitchen go out and find it. Right. Uh, Wolfgang Puck too, I read about that. He had, he had several oh. guys like this too. So pretty much any famous chef or any famous restaurant, they will have someone like this. It isn't just like Red Lobster. It's like, go to the fish market, see what you can get. It's right. like, I know this strange guy. He could probably get me a lot of fresh flounder. I don't know how, but he can do it. Go and meet him. And sometimes you don't even meet him. Like, they'll just drop a box off in a certain location. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a kidnapping. But <laughs> it's like, like Amazon food. Prime. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. It's... <laughs> right, it's like a kidnapping or Amazon Prime, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Two very similar things. <laughs> and since these guys know everybody, they can, like, undercut other restaurants. Like, my guy used to do that to Red Lobster all the time, <laughs> like, with fresh fish and things oh, like specifically. that. specifically. Yeah, like, oh, no, we reserved that for Red Lobster. But since I know you, all right. Because <laughs> there's such a food culture, at least in media, of, oh, there are these chefs who are particularly amazing. And I don't know, I like the idea that all of them are depending on a team of these fixer, finder, uh, French word kind of guys, you yeah. know, like sort of sort of like from the outside movies feel like they're just made by directors and they just spring from their heads, you know, but no, there's an amazing cinematographer behind them and mm -hmm. a location scout would probably be kind of similar to this job, right. you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Every uh, major profession has some sort of scrounger for them, like military, it's especially popular. There's a scrounger, can get you anything. Yeah, you yeah. just have to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd mentioned uh, the military, so it makes me think of this job. You guys spoke to people who are poacher fighters. 
they are fighting people. Uh, they're like an opposing force against people who poach elephants and rhinos and animals like that. Yeah, so uh, they're anti-poaching squads in a lot of major national parks in Africa. Yeah. Because, you know, people tend to kill animals we like. Right, I think because I think the listener at home uh, and me going into this, I knew about poachers. They're people who go out and cruelly hunt these amazing animals. I hadn't thought about who is stopping them, and you guys talk to them. It's really neat. The guys I talked to were in Kenya, and they would go out. Uh, they find traps. They know what to look for. It's usually like a small bit of wire or like some sort of netting. They stop those, and then if they see poachers, they'll radio in. But it works both ways because there's a lot of locals who need this for food. So they'll have people watching the anti-poachers. So these are the anti-anti-poachers who are on cell phones all the time calling the poachers that there's anti-poachers coming towards you. It's a whole world. My God. I know. And it's real conflicted because on one hand, you know, these are endangered species we're trying to save. There's not too many rhinos left in the world. There's not too many African elephants in the world. We want to save them. On the other hand, a lot of people there are starving and they need food. And big animals are a source of a lot of food. Also, ivory gets a lot of much-needed money, so it's like, yeah, what I do think, you do? <laughs> I think the article said that the uh, rhino horn is literally worth more than its weight in gold. It's actually yep. uh, pricier per pound. And then, uh, and then also people know there's this huge elephant poaching industry. How put together are the people opposing them? What do they, what do, they do? They're, I know they like find traps, but is it just kind of a guy, I'm almost imagining that Jurassic Park uh, uh, Velociraptor Keeper guy, Muldoon, <laughs> like just a guy in a hat who's very savvy. Is that is that these people? They work with the Kenyan military sometimes, so they have yeah. access to their equipment. So they have helicopters, they have drones, they can go out and like find these people. If they have to, they can shoot at them. That's That's the reality of the situation. But generally, yeah, they have a lot of help, and they can take them down as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's a full-on, it sounds like a military conflict. Yeah, and it's really weird because yeah. sometimes the animals, you know, they're animals, so they might attack you. But usually, they'll kind of know, like, the anti-poachers are on their side. It's really weird. It's like, Whoa. these guys with guns are shooting at us. They might be okay. <laughs> That's cool. I am I, told elephants are very intelligent, you know, and things like mm-hmm. that. I, I I sort of love the idea that they're wise enough to be like these guys, you know, like like they give them a wink or something, you know. So they just kind of figure they kind of figure it out. I think just from what talking with them, it's like yeah, they they kind of know so as much as they can. And then you always hear about poachers getting killed by animals in the bush anyway. So that's an element I hadn't really thought of that the poachers are doing very dangerous work. So oh, sometimes yeah. the elephants uh, take care of this themselves. Elephants sometimes, if it's a predator going after them, predators are very neat. So they may get them, but they may only find like a piece of their shoe left and be like, and like their body dragged away in the sand. It's like, oh, I think we know what happened here. (laughs) (laughs) There's one or two more here to talk about, but uh, one of them is human hair collection. Uh, There's a whole market for people's human hair. Uh, to be used, and it, it's uh, got a weird economy to it. There is. Uh, the human hair market is, well, first of all, people want human hair for several reasons. Uh, if it's facial hair, they want it for, like, real mustaches for movies or Halloween or... No, I would not have thought of mustaches. That's fun. Bigger one is for uh, women. They want real hair extensions. Fake ones yes. look fake. I know of that business. That's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. and you yeah. want real hair to look real. And there's certain colors that are rarer than others. There's different kinds of blacker hair, different kinds of browner hair, and different shades that you need the right one. And if you have the right one, you could sell it for a lot. Right. It's very hard to match black with black. Like, people don't even realize sometimes. Like, it's oh, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Like, have you ever tried to match a black shirt with black jeans? It's just, it's difficult. Yeah. You and don't think about it until you to hair. It. Yeah. Yeah. And also, hair is very hard to sell. You need, like, the right type. You need it clean. You need it, like... You can't have it all frizzy. You can't have a perm with it. You need it straight, that color, so they can attach it. Right. You just can't send it in a box to them and hope for the best. She gets that all the time. You just can't have pubes in a box, you know, pubic hair in a box. She gets that, and no one wants that for an extension. People can't just mail them hair, in particular pubic hair, because it's gross. But uh, they can't. Right. you have to come in and give it to them personally, something like that? Well, sometimes you take a picture of it, oh. and they'll be like, oh, okay, that, that looks okay. But you have to be like a known buyer. Like, mm-hmm. they'll have to trust you with it. There are generally like a, a length requirement on it, too, right? It's like at least, you know, a few inches here. Right. And sometimes like, like eight. Yes, there's like you need at least around six, eight inches. Which depends, just depends on the hair. Yeah, but. which disqualifies most pubic hair. And a lot of people. <laughs> so you yeah. need long hair, you need a certain color, you need it clean, there can't be anything wrong with it, and you get over $1,000 sometimes for it, so it's not a bad deal. Yeah, yeah. The last job here is 
Um, the article title is I Trick Bulls Into Gay Sex. And then it's about <laughs> someone who is a bull semen collector. Yeah. So this is a job on some farms where they collect bull semen. Uh-huh. As you could probably tell from the title. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a proud son of the Midwest. I understand that cows need to mate and create more cows to keep agriculture going. People want bull semen because they want, you know, it's a certain type of breed or stock or whatever. They want that to make better baby bulls, or a.k.a. calves. So how they collect is really weird. Uh, basically, the process is it's not like, you know, self-pleasuring a bull or anything like that. You don't do that. That's gross. So they do something grosser. <laughs> What they do is uh, they trick bulls in having gay sex, pretty much. Uh-huh. They put a female in front of them, wait until they get Randy, and then they switch that out with a castrated bull, which is a bull with who has uh, been neutered, and then they have the bull go to town on that, but they have like a little sleeve that they catch the semen in. So it's like a switcheroo that the, the bull falls for. Yeah. Oh, boy. If, if this was in brothels, it'd be highly illegal. But oh, yeah, fully, yeah, oh, fully yeah, a crime, yeah, yeah. fully sure. a crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and uh, there was also there was one part, uh, sort of like how some of these other commodities are worth a lot of money. Uh, so is the semen, the bull semen. Bull semen is very expensive. Depends on the cow, but yeah, it's worth thousands of dollars sometimes. Uh, general like frozen little icicle of semen, I guess you can call it. It's like fifteen bucks. Like bottom shelf regular. Yeah, this this is the yeah. uh, is this is this sort of like what I've heard about horse racing, where there will be people prizing certain horses' uh, genetic material because they think it'll generate great racing horses. Yeah, so uh, sometimes the bulls are used for bull riding. Oh, so this isn't just agriculture. This is no, sports. It's, sometimes it's sports, and yeah. uh, my guy would do some of the bull riding ones. Uh, and generally, uh, you want stronger bulls that can give more of a kick. That's what's wanted in bull riding. And they would be like, yeah, we can get this. Get, like, a bunch of ice cools worth of semen. Uh, sometimes it could cost thousands of dollars. Well, and, and also with the price of it, I think the article talked about there being heists of this stuff, which is very fun to me. I'm yes, this is like that. the worst Oceans movie ever. <laughs> 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 and so there are robberies, like, all over, like Wisconsin, California, Minnesota. It's it's kind of an epidemic almost uh, because you can have a few thermos fools or, like, a big block full of semen that costs like 50 grand, 70 grand. Man. You know, these aren't just like bloodlines. They're just like, these are good stock or like, this is a certain type. And so it's pretty general. So you can get away with it. There was a recent theft of semen. So I guess they left behind evidence. DNA evidence? DNA Ooh. evidence. Wait, the, the thieves left behind evidence. Yes. On this heist, they found bull semen left over and also human semen left over. Oh, no. Either something terrible happened. Okay. Or this is the worst attempt at a cover-up ever. <laughs> they try to, like, paste it over with other semen, like, to make it look like, oh, no, this was not that kind of semen heist. This is a different kind of semen heist. Don't even worry. It's not bull semen heist. It's a different kind. What a confusing plan. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think we had one more job. Did you want to do the roadkill cleanup? So a roadkill cleaner. Uh, they work for uh, departments of transportation, cities, you know, what have you. Uh, my guy worked for ODOT, which is the Ohio Department of Transportation. I've always thought this was a fascinating thing just because you see deer on the side of the road constantly just as a little kid growing up in the Midwest. They're, they're, they're a plague. So there are different rules. And I've told people here in California that, oh, yeah, if you get the game warden to come out, you can just take that deer home. And people out here in California are like, what? How? Why? <laughs> they don't understand that. But, like, it's it's food, you know. Mm-hmm. People, plenty of people want to mount that head even if they're not hunters. Right. Um, that's a totally valid thing people try to do. And to make this uh, go back to that debrouillade connection, there was a story we had in there where um, the guy needed venison meat and a lot of it for uh, yeah. a, a restaurant special. Oh, great. And yeah. he, he was thinking, where am I going to get a deer? Where am I going to get a deer? And get it, like certified as like a clean hit or whatever and so he was like looking around like okay oh. i can hit a i can hit a deer with my car and i could get it this he was considering it. that he was thinking about it yeah that's he, pretty he, a deer will mess up your car that's pretty bold they really yeah, yeah it really can finally he lucked out and he found like a hunting lodge that had yeah. a bunch of it just sitting around in a freezer but still like that's just i mean that's a thing you can do is go hit a deer and take it home yeah i mean 
like hitting a deer, it's very common in like the Midwest, and yeah, it's like the state sport of many states. Yeah. <laughs> but one, well, it's like if you're if you're listening at home or in your car, don't don't try to go do it. It'll it'll mess oh, up it'll, your car. It's dangerous to your life, especially a moose or something will ruin you. You know, uh, but yeah. uh, you might get killed. The deer might get killed. You know, it's an interesting job because you don't think of roadkill cleaner as being a real job that someone would have. I always thought growing up that the people who cleared roadkill off the side of the road were just like prisoners. I mean, you see those, they're not like chain gangs, oh, yeah. but like it's, right. it's guys in their little orange jumpsuits or whatever. And like there's police officers monitoring them and they've just got trash bags along the side of the highway. Of course, yeah. And I always thought that that was how roadkill got cleaned up. Now, it's usually Department of Transportation yeah. or whatever company you hire to adopt a highway. Yeah. You know how you see ones like maybe around Anaheim here. It's oh. like, adop- this is cleaned by Disneyland. It's not. <laughs> yeah, I see I see those adopted highway mile signs all the time. Are those people then on the hook for animals that die there? They just uh, pay to have it cleaned. They usually wow. hire like an outside company or uh, the transportation itself. So, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like the local Boy Scout troop is not out there shoveling roadkill <laughs> right. every other weekend just for funsies. <laughs> like that's, that's not what they do. Right. And it's not just deer. There's lots of animal, oh, different yeah. animals that get hit and there's a strategy for each one like if you hit a bear for example first of all your car is just totaled after that man yeah but also like it's really hard to get because it's heavy but it usually doesn't go into pieces like smaller animals that's what it usually goes everywhere sometimes oh boy uh a little icky here but like if you hit a rabbit or something like that it it it, it's just gone Yeah. There's no hope. And if you leave it on the side of the road for too long, it builds up with gases. And it could, if you pick it up wrong, it could burst a little bit and get all over you. And oh, it's not just a little oh. bit. Oh, okay. I was being, I was yeah, being modest yeah. there. Uh, ever it, seen that chestburster scene in Aliens? I have seen that, yes. Or Alien. Uh, yeah, it just goes all over like a pop. Yeah. So then, and do these these cleaners, they think of it, you said it was different strategies. Like they're say, they they think, oh, okay, now I need to go in on a, we got one rabbit down there and one opossum over here and so on. Right. And yet, but also, you know, raccoons, coyotes, they have uh, rabies sometimes. So you have to, be, there's a different strategy for that. If it's oh. a skunk, it smells terribly. So you have to, there's a different, like, I think he right. said you have to put in a bag or some sort of fluid on it and you have to. There's a special way to do skunks. It differs seasonally, too. Like, there, you've got to yeah. have different strategies for the summer versus during the winter. I mean, if you've got a frozen bear on the side of the road, that is significantly harder to clean up than, like, a flattened rabbit right, in, the, yeah. in the summer. I think I would have assumed roadkill cleaner is a very, very janitorial, custodial kind of job uh, if I didn't know anything about it. You know, not to not to pick on janitors and custodians or something, but I would think mm-hmm. it's just very basic cleaning. It sounds like they're tradesmen, craftsmen, highly specialized people. That's amazing. You just don't take a deer off the road and just chuck it in the back. That's It's not that easy. Right. It's like how if a plumber isn't just you get into some pipes with a wrench, you actually know what you're doing and, and have yeah. learned a lot of different skills. Right. And yet to become more of a people person because until recently they had like dead deer sticking out of the back of their truck. And then I guess people got upset about <laughs> it's like a family going down the road. That I, for his example, it was a family going down the road, and they saw a deer head sticking out, like off the side of the oh, of the cleaner's vehicle. It was, and it was, it was a bloody one. It wasn't just like a hunter got it. It was just like a bunch of dead, bloody deer in the back, and the Man. family got upset, so they had to start covering it. Yeah. <laughs> and well, then thoughtful. Yeah. And where they take these guys is usually, it could be one of several places. It can be, say, a uh, landfill situation, just chuck it in there. Sometimes they do, like, a sky burial for the vultures, just leave it out for them. And then sometimes they just... Oh, I, sky burial made me think they fire it into the air or something. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> they leave it for uh, carry on. Yeah, 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 sure. And then my favorite one is uh, if it's fresh enough, uh, some places do bring it to local zoos. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And feed the feed the lions and so on. Yeah. Circle of life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now it's the lion now, pig. This now is it's great. the lion pig. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Isaac Cabe and Evan Simon. They get out there with their press hat on and they uncover some amazing stuff. And I'm so glad they brought it all in today. That was a great time. And listen, I know it's Labor Day and or a time after Labor Day when you chose to listen to this. Either way, you deserve a luxurious and enjoyable vacation in the resort that is our Food Notes, where you will discover more about the stories Isaac and Evan turned up. 
Also, I mentioned our pal Robert Evans at the top of the show. He founded that section of the site, and he is also podcasting with pals of ours elsewhere these days. Hear him on his show, Behind the Bastards. And on that show, they uncover surprising facts in the personal lives of history's greatest monsters, Hollywood's worst bad men, and more. It's great. Speaking of uh, Hollywood also, not the best segue. Let's go with it. Our next LA Live episode is imminent. Imminent, I say. September 15th at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles. You can get tickets now. There is a link in the footnotes. And we are going to be talking about Emmy Awards that we wish existed. All kinds of categories and prizes for TV. Highlighting things that, you know, just don't get celebrated enough. Or would be very, very funny to celebrate. Whole range going on. And our range of guests is amazing. We are joined by writer and comedians Haley Mancini, Demi Adejuibe, and Dana Gould. What a lineup. It's it's kind of bonkers that all three of them will be in the same room. And even more bonkers that I get to be there. How did I get in? Very weird. But you can be in that room too for a very, very low, low ticket price. Go to UCB Sunset's website at sunset.ucbtheater.com or follow the link in our footnotes to get your tickets. And beyond that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Lyra Smith over at the wonderful studio Little Everywhere in Glendale, California. And this episode was then edited by Chris Souza over in his hidden underground editing lair, I have decided. It's just going to be canon. Great. If you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing that is a lot of people's job now, you know? And then, and then there's this funny thing where there are some older people who say, haha, social media, what a ridiculous job, that shouldn't be a job. And then some of those same people say there aren't enough jobs for people. You know, it's a real, it's a real weird, like old school kind of thing that, uh, I don't know, people just haven't thought through, I think. Anyway, if you want some new school, fun, fun tweets, find my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates, my newsletter, and so much more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.